enjoyed it. I am enjoying it, for sure. Oh, good mix here. This is a YouTube video, everybody, if you're interested. Kids praise and worship. That is a song I sang when I was a kid. Did you ever sing that song when you were a kid? Yeah, of course. I mean, not quite, uh, not like a hip-hop version, but yeah, definitely. That was very cool. I love those songs, except so many of them are actually bad. I love so many of those songs. Yeah. Praise the Lord, pass the ammunition. Praise <laughs> the Lord. You ever heard that one? No. I actually didn't sing that when I was young, but my sister sings it all the time. We sang the, that Lord's Army song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I still sure. love that song. Of course. Yeah, our... Our, not, uh, you know, I'm, interesting. I'm Ephesians, not teaching it to our children, but yeah. Paul says, you know, um, put on the former God. Uh huh. Yeah. Ephesians six. He also says our um, our battles against isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Right. I think it's a metaphor. This yeah. is what Paul does. He reaches in your culture. He finds things you know, and that's how he yeah. impacts the yeah, gospel. Yeah, that's true. So, um, Paul certainly does not condone violence. No. Um, okay, Taylor. A few things to talk about in the weekend roundup. Okay. Well, we had a, a VP debate last week. Oh, okay. And everybody's talking about the fly. The fly, sure. Yeah. There um, was a fly in 2016, too, though. I don't remember that. Who got the fly? Hillary. A fly landed on her? Yeah. Okay. See, in that she, debate where they were, like, walking around. See, Mike Pence, nobody remembers anymore. Nobody? We'll yeah, nobody does remember that. Um, you know what I was expecting in meme world? And maybe this happened. I, would, I thought somebody would do the Jeff Goldblum, the fly, like, the meme thing. Oh. Nobody did that. You're right. Nobody did do that. Missed opportunity. I know. If I had Photoshop, I could be a memer. <laughs> yeah, full-time. should we talk to the meme creators? Yep. Yeah. No, here's what I want to talk about the debate. Okay. Um, this is me um, on my journey. Okay. I found myself paying attention to the memes and the clip where Kamala Harris yeah. um, was speaking and um, Vice President Pence had said something and she said... I'm speaking. Excuse me, Mr. Vice President. I'm speaking. Yeah. And she, she said it with such a visible smile on her face. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, the, the commentary was by thousands of women. Like, we all know this moment. Yes. And for whatever reason, this this caught my attention in a way it hadn't caught my attention before. Okay. Like, I've, I've certainly um, seen things about, like, um, see, here's an example of this latent sexism and chauvinism is that how i use that word there yeah in in conversation that's just you know it's a social script we don't even notice it right um i did notice it there you did before she said something or because she said something i didn't actually watch the debate live oh okay so it came to me in the context of framing it that way okay i don't know but it was a little more salient this time um and and my goodness the vp debate was mounds better than the presidential debate in terms of interruption right well uh well, I, yeah, I guess I didn't watch. Sure. But I mean, like, it didn't... The clips I watched, people weren't yelling. Well, so the, the interruption wasn't heated. But yeah. I think in that, that can be more insidious. Do you know what I mean? When sure. someone is just, like, talking over you calmly. Yeah. Because then if you say, like, I'm still talking. Yeah. You can seem like, oh, what a... Like, why can't she just chill out? Do you hmm. know? Yeah, and I do remember in 16... No, it was actually this, this go-around... <clears throat> I remember thinking Elizabeth Warren on the debate stage mm-hmm. was wearing a demeanor that, um, I don't want to say unnatural because I guess I didn't know her beforehand very well, but I felt like she was trying and I had wondered 
if she was being coached to have to to be very like cheery yes and positive mm-hmm. and stuff yeah um and so then when she, you know i think that this um this moment sort of bolsters the case yeah that women are cognizant of this and have to be oh yeah mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> 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 yeah i wish you could have seen taylor's face there she was she was getting ready to preach at me a little bit no no i just yeah it is um yeah, I think that moment was so meaningful for a lot of people, a lot of women, because uh, because the face and the tone that Kamala employed are like, well, that Kamala Harris, uh, a vice presidential candidate, uh, employed are so familiar to women because it's like if you don't hit exactly the right mark, mm-hmm. someone will accuse you of being angry or of taking up too much space or too much time or something like that. So the thought being, if if it would have been a another male candidate, yeah, they could have rebuked Mike Pence and without any kind of commentary on how they did it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we saw that some in the presidential debate in that, like, I don't know that Joe Biden was particularly... Um, went out of his way to be kind or smiley or cheerful when he was responding to President Trump, but in the in the debates in 2016, Hillary got slammed a lot for not seeming cheerful or right. kind or whatever. Here's a question for you. Okay. Can you think of an example, either in fiction or in real life, of a woman who is kind of unguarded in their response and is celebrated for it? Um, I probably should have given you that one ahead of time. <laughs> Well, I think you see that more now. Um, for some reason, the, th- the thing that's coming to mind pretty immediately is uh, the Hunger Games and Katniss Everdeen. She's pretty, like, wears her emotions outside of herself hmm. um, and does not, you know, the feedback but she's I wonder receiving. if fiction has the advantage of, like, we're framed right away in the narrative to cheer for her as the antagonist. Yes. Yeah. Protagonist. Yeah. Sorry. Protagonist. Yeah, that's fine. Uh Certainly, I do think fiction has that. Um, I think, you know, you see a lot of Hermione Granger owning that she is really smart. and. But there, you can, she almost writes the struggle. Like, her yeah. smartness and superiority is almost, like, you know, she almost is taxed for it by, like, oh, certainly. Hermione's a know-it-all. And yeah, certainly in the beginning of the narrative. I mean, you think of the first book, and, yeah. like, they weren't, it took two-thirds of the book for them to become friends with her. Yeah. Um. So yeah. What about any of the um, the heroines in the Marvel series? You know, I'm not super familiar with Marvel, especially the women, which is well, actually all of them, but really the people who mostly the ones I'm familiar with are the ones who've like headed franchises. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I Captain think, Marvel. Yeah. She sort of. I mean, it had the most feminist flair. On purpose. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, interestingly, she she may be the, I don't know the Marvel world super well. She seemed to be the most powerful figure to me of the yeah, whole bunch. That seems to be the case. I also think the women in Black Panther are, yeah. like, very amazing. Um, I am also very interested in, like, uh, I, the Wonder Woman movies are sort of, like, it seems like they're. Not seen them. Um, well, there's only one that's come out. I think another one is coming out soon. But the the first one. You know, she like comes from a land where there's like only women. Okay. So I don't know much about the story. What itself, an interesting, but it's interesting um, to me. sociological reality. Yeah. Obviously, it's mythic, but it would be interesting to see what dynamics are at play in a 
I don't know what the word is. It mono gendered. Yeah. I, I never get those th- words right. Yeah. I don't know. No, I don't think it is gendered. Monosexed would be the. Sure. I don't know. Civilization. Because people don't like gender reveal parties. They say that's the the <laughs> yeah. vernacular is wrong. Yeah. Um, well, anyhow, back to Kamala Harris, Senator right. Harris. Sure. Um, I was thinking because I, I, you know, it's this is how it goes for me. I internalize something more and more. And mm-hmm. I think I'm on a journey on so many things. Sure. Like, I don't know that I've arrived at it. But it's, um, I, it made me ask the question, how do we learn and how do we actually get it? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Because she's put in such a hard place that she has to feign the rebuke in terms of, or cloak it in like this cheeriness. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, and I think a, a further complication of this situation also is like, and then you can't talk about it um, except to other women who understand the struggle. But it's like, then if you she, can't, you said, well, so if you talk about it, a lot of the response is like. Uh, like my favorite thing is like if I post something about something like that on Facebook or a social media site, a lot of times you'll get a response that's like, nobody thinks like that anymore. It's like, why are women always looking for a way to be the victim? If you just go out there and perform your best, then you'll win if you're the best and you'll lose if you're not. But it's like, yeah, well, that directly conflicts with my experience in the world as a woman. Mm. Yeah. So to to my question about how do we learn? Yeah. I've we're we're in the middle of I think a well it seems like we've been in the middle of the civil rights thing for the last maybe 250 years. But Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, yeah. It, it feels the temperature's hot right now, right? Uh-huh. Maybe a little cooler than it was 3 weeks ago even, but Yeah. So and this particular journey that I think really picked up steam again in 2015 I measure my own sense of knowing and learning with Colin Kaepernick. Okay. And um, I remember when he first took a knee. Mm-hmm. was 16, I think. Yeah. I, I remember articulating to my brother-in-law, well, you know, I, w- I wasn't like against a protest, but I was like, to me, it was partic- particularly devastating that it was National Anthem. Um, and I was oh. thinking of my brother and my dad, military people. Sure. It felt like, oh, you're, you're attacking a thing. Um, and then, of course, um, I don't know. It was like a, a switch clicked. Yeah. Uh, two years later, I don't remember it was where, you know, somebody very eloquently said, well, he tried to protest peacefully. Yeah. And then you didn't you didn't listen. Yeah. And that really was like a boom moment, you know, yeah. like, oh, my gosh. And I realized had he not picked the national anthem um, and it was a more subdued form, it wouldn't get any attention. It right. wouldn't work. Um, the other big thing is I read an article about how intentional he was about seeking out the um, opinion. I remember, forget the guy's name. He was like a, a yeah. veteran, yeah, like a Navy SEAL or something. Mm-hmm. And he, this is the guy that suggested instead of sitting, which he was originally doing, take a knee. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, like he he did due diligence. He yeah. really sought it out. And then um, I was full on board. And it is the, yeah, and it is the thing of like threading the needle of like, and if it had been a less meaningful moment, then people might have never paid attention at all. Right. And so I think that's a tricky, tricky thing. Protest is tricky, you know, as far as like finding something meaningful. And just also, I think at some point, if something is important enough to you, you have to decide that it's like it's important enough to do. And it might offend other people, but maybe the offense is like part of yeah the part of the protest you we know? think about some of the stuff the prophets did that just seems yes yeah um, exactly absurd to us but it's it's these 
I don't want to use this word pejoratively, but it's this kind of theater that's intended to grab attention that, yeah. I mean, historically has precedence for being necessary. Yes. Um, well, anyways, I, I just want to acknowledge that moment and yeah. uh, say, okay, it made an impression on me. I like to think that I am yeah. on a journey of being respectful and oh, um, yeah. subduing kind of the... Why don't, and this word never comes to me. Ma, machoism? Machi, it's machismo? 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 Is that a thing? Um, or is that more... They say... Because it gets tagged sadio machismo. That's like a bedroom thing, isn't it? I do not know. S&M? <laughs> so oh, you know I don't know. Yeah. No, I have no clue what that. Yeah. But it must... Ma- macho, it's all the same macho, word. Macho, right. Yeah, it has something yeah, to do. Yeah, that stuff. Trying to to shed that. I think we're all on Chauvinism. that journey. Chauvinism. Misogyny. Yeah. Misogyny. I think we're all, we're all on that journey... As a culture. Yes. Well. And individually as well. Kudos to Senator Harris for. Many kudos to Senator for Harris. keeping her stuff together. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. I do, I do want to talk about something related to this podcast. First of all, okay. we're at 13 and 4. That's 13 ratings and 4 reviews. My gosh. Now, I will say I'm responsible for two of the reviews. <laughs> I use my sister's phone. And our dear friend Bree Childs reviewed us. Yes. And then a mystery individual, right? Or did we ever figure out who that was? No, we don't well, know. Well, if you are that mystery individual, yeah. we're so grateful. Yes. Thank you for being a legit reviewer of us and being kind about it. Yeah. It means more to us than is probably healthy. <laughs> um, but we'll take it. Yeah. We're appreciative for sure. Yeah. 13 and 4. Just someday we're going to be at 10 million. Someday. Yeah. I can't wait for if the we, day. We just gotta, okay, there's one thing I have to to do before I can't wait the whole episode okay last week uh-huh. I oh. errantly said <laughs> that Rick Carlisle yeah. was now the coach of the Bucks. yeah there are some mistakes you make that make sense Rick Carlisle for the record is still currently the coach of the Mavericks of the Dallas Mavericks I had a moment where I was very sad because I was like <laughs> when did we I lose Rick Josh Carlisle I right and that we, he's not our coach anymore. I made me very sad and then I had a moment where I was like I don't think that's true and, but I didn't want to, like, go full to bat for it and then be the wrong person on the podcast. And so I just, I guess I, what I let Josh be the wrong person on the well, podcast. Well, and, you know, as a, a three who's especially prone to this kind of embarrassment, it was crucifying for <gasps> me to realize that when, I had been such an idiot and gotten this wrong. So I hear anyone the, say anything to Yeah, you? Aaron Hill graciously oh. reached out through an email, like, um, That's no. That's not true. Okay. But I, I, I did figure it out. I went, you know, I get all these NBA memes on Instagram that I read. Right, yeah. And one of them was, like, Coach of the Years, and I started reading, and, like, mm-hmm. I said, I saw Budenholzer, who, by the way, won Coach of the Year last year, the Bucks coach. And then I thought, well, maybe they look alike. And there's like, I think Freckles and maybe their I mean, last they're name. They're both white men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I can laugh. Um, no, but then this is my best guess. I went to the Bucks Mavs games two year ago, two years yeah. ago, and they did like several different bits on Rick Carlisle. Yeah. And I think my brain just did some kind of weird. Symmetry, Completion, and I made him right. the Bucks coach in my head. They both have won Coach of the Year twice, both recently. Mm-hmm. So Rick Carlisle is like, I really, I think I was sort of paralyzed by my sadness in believing that he had somehow been pulled from the Mavs. Yeah. So I was just because he's so great. Yeah. And I just really can't wait to watch the documentary of his life. Or the like movie about his life with um, Jim Carrey. Oh my gosh, it's stunning! It, it is. is stunning. It is. It's crazy. Okay, 
Um, so I apologize to our listeners. I have lost all credibility as a sports commentator for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, that's why we're calling in a guest today. Yeah, we got a special guest at the end of the show to talk about what happened last night in the life of the NBA. Yes. Okay. Um, one more thing before we talk to our main, uh, about our main discussion. Okay. Um, I want to talk about TV shows, and okay. I have a surprise for you. <gasps> first, let's say what we're watching. I am watching for the first time Schitt's Creek. Oh, my gosh. And can I tell you? So good. Okay, is that how you feel? Oh, yeah. I'm like 12, 13 episodes into season one, and I'm like, meh. Okay, that's totally fair. I think like all this kind of comedy has been done already. Okay, I think that's totally fair in season one, but it will be interesting to talk to you once you're into like season three. Well, and here's the other thing. If I'm going to, because how many seasons are out? Like six. Six? And how many episodes per season? It's more than 10. It's not like a Netflix thing. No, I think it's like 18 or something. So this is going to be a big commitment. Yeah. And I will say, um, I, at this point in my life, I need something more out of comedies. Okay. I feel that you are going to eat all of these words. I'm not saying it's not a great show. No, I know. I'm just saying I'm setting up. I do have bigger expectations for this investment. Not that I don't think it can meet it. Because people, because people are so enthusiastic about it? Well, that's more the time commitment. Oh, right. Sure. Yeah, it's like no, if I'm going to do this. Look, you're going to love it, I think. Okay. I think. Okay, um, I need some. Uh, I need some feel-good, redemptive stuff. Yeah, like um, oh, you're gonna get it. You're okay. gonna get it. When um, when Michael goes to Pam's art show and says like that kind of stuff, I need those moments. In spades, don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm excited a little bit. Yeah. All right. It's well, I'll coming. keep going. Yeah. Uh, one other thing, I mean, if if the Emmys mean anything, my goodness. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not. It um. You know, I think the first two seasons are a lot of world building. Okay. Um, That's fair. So that you can get to those moments. Which is like, when does that, I mean, that moment in the office is like, season I three. weep yeah. thinking about it, you yeah. know? Maybe season two. Yeah. It's like the end of season two okay. or season three. I think it's season two. Um, and I would say, I would say the first moment that is like, I could weep thinking about it is also like end of season two of Shits Creek. Okay. But then there are. Many other moments. Like well, that. I'll uh, go for the investment. Now, I will say, you know, you talked about world building. This is a total genius subject. Yeah. I um, I finished the book I'm writing, the fiction book I'm writing. You did? You yeah. finished? I did finish. <gasps> and now I'm going back and That's editing amazing. it. And <laughs> such an emo- emotional roller coaster. I, I read the first two chapters last night for editing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, this isn't very good. And all of a sudden, I was destroyed. I'm like, this sucks. I can't believe it. Then I got to chapter five, and I was like really into it. Yeah. And I felt an emotional response in myself, even though I'd written the thing. Oh, And I thought, wow. okay, you know, if I go back to Harry Potter book one. Right. The first chapter is world building, right? Who cares where Privet Drive is? But you need to know. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's that sort of, so maybe shows need the same kind of levity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you know what's so insane is I know some people, some of our very own UBCers who I read, I essentially, when I reread Harry Potter, I start at book four and I go to the end. I feel like I know one, two, three. I get it. I get what's happening. But we have some people who they only read, like, books one, two, and three. Well, interestingly, I just researched this because I was oh, talking to Roy about this. Um, the first book sold 100 million copies. Uh-huh. The second book sold something like 80 million. I think then it's three through f- seven sold, like, 65 million. Like, there's a very consistent reader basis after that. Uh-huh. And I think, though, that one and two, you know, it's it's like they get added to curriculum, reading curriculums for schools and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But they are the most read, or at least the most consumed, I should say. Well, I wonder if it's like you buy the first one and then you're like, I can borrow the others or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Could be. It'd be interesting to see. 
What great books. Yeah. Okay. I have a surprise for you. You do? I do have a surprise I, for you. I'm excited. Last Yesterday after church, I uh-huh. came home. Yes. I made myself some lunch. Okay. I sat down on my couch. I turned on my TV, and I watched episode one of season one of The West Wing. You watched the pilot? Yes. Oh, my gosh. This Which is was so a, exciting. a great pilot. How we were talking about the West Wing earlier? How did you not tell me that? Is it because you wanted it to? Be yeah, a I wanted it to be a surprise <gasps> on the podcast. Oh my gosh! Okay, okay. This is the show you're rewatching. I am so obsessed with the West Wing right now. Is I, it your favorite show ever? I don't know. Is it a top fiver? It's so hard. I think yes. Okay. I mean, it's up there with Parenthood for me. Oh, is yeah. that where we connect? That that's yes, the best show in the universe of all time. Parenthood is so good. I need to rewatch Parenthood. Parent, we should have an episode just on Parenthood. Oh my gosh, where is it on Netflix still right now? I haven't even looked recently. Okay, me neither. It's Parenthood is so good though. Parenthood is transcendent. And the West, so the, I think the West Wing is. I mean, it's like a completely different thing because it's not family. It's you know politics, but I just think it's so. What did you think? I liked it. You know, the, the best pilot I've ever seen in my life was Friday Night Lights. I don't know why, but by the end of the thing, I felt like. Well, Jason Street, you've already. I mean, it's the first episode, right? Yeah, but it's more than that. It's like. You know, maybe it's because I played high school football, and it remains one of the most magical experiences of my life. Yeah, that's should be said. But you know, they they use explosions in the sky for so much of the score. Yeah, and I'm really susceptible to being romance romanticized by that music in okay. any kind of setting. And like when they go, it's game day, and they play with the kids. Yeah, and that music's in the background. Yeah, it's just uh, the community feels there. You know, West Wing also has a really great score. Okay, well, I'm excited. Like, I, they don't have it at first, like the... Well, we were noting the score already, because Mabel's like, what happened? And her cue was the music. Really? And at the end of the episode, I don't know if you remember, the president comes in, he's been yeah. in a bike accident, and... And he's talking to the... Yeah, but even after that, it's just like, it's nothing dramatic happens, he's just kind of dealing with his staff, and um, the music was so, you know, the, the, the trumpet features pretty... Yeah. Um, well, you know, and they talk a lot about, like, classical music, and I know you like to listen yeah. to classical music. And yeah, no, but the like intro, the opening song, it's about, I think, four or five episodes in before they get the final version. And it's like trumpets swelling and da na na na. It's so great. It's so great. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's almost sounded John Barry ish to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy that dances with wolves. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Some good stuff. There. I think Sorkin uses music really, really well. So we won't do this on the air, but I want to know later which characters you think remind me. me of I'm you. hoping it's Rob Lowe because of my good looks. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not Rob Lowe. Dang it. It's not yeah. Rob Lowe's character. All right. But he's very, you know what's interesting is the overlap between Sam Seaborn and his character on Parks and Rec. Yeah. It's not 100%, but there's a lot of shit. Well, I think so. that's an easy character for him to act. Yeah, that seems true. It comes <gasps> oh my a little gosh, natural. What an exciting surprise. Yeah, you're welcome. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. I am excited to keep watching. It'll it'll take me a while because we're going to chip away at um, Shit's Creek. Yeah. And Lindsay, I think, has watched like the first 13 episodes of West Wing already. I'd seen oh, somebody yeah. has on my account. Okay. So I'm hoping I can kind of do this on my own on lunches, catch up to her, or just make it my own show. Yeah. And just, yeah, I guess I could watch well, it on Do y'all do that? You have like a. So Our like own shows, together West shows. Wing, yeah, yeah, the West Wing is my show. Kathleen's never watched it. Okay. We together are watching Lovecraft Country right now on HBO, which mm. is so good. Okay. And I don't think there's anything else we're watching together right now. Actually. You know what HBO show I want to go back and watch? What? John Adams. 
because I listened to that presidential podcast, you know, uh-huh. yeah. Adam, do you know that John Adams was like the only founding father slash all the way up to almost Lincoln president to oppose slavery? Well, his son was, Quincy was too. From the get-go, from the inception of the country, he had the vision. He was totally against it. I love that. I Another fact that. about John Adams, sorry, rabbit trail. I love it. He, um, the Boston Massacre happened. Uh-huh. And feel how you want about that and the dirty politics at play. Sure. I think this is really important for democracy. He is the only lawyer in New England who would take the case to defend those British soldiers. And not because he thought they were right, but because he thought he so deeply believed in fair trial. Yeah. So very principled man. So now I'm like, I got to go back and watch. Is it McCullough? David McCullough wrote the biography of him that was so popular. Uh Uh-huh. I think so. Um, John Adams, a very large character in the Hamilton musical, which you refuse to engage. I'm going to get there. I just want to be prepared for it. Okay. How are you preparing? Well, I might bite the bullet and read the... um, Chernow? Chernow book. Because, yeah. you know, I just read Titan. Yeah. He wrote that, too. Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. But it was a commitment. I read, like, 15 pages of very dense material every day for, like, three months, two months. The Chernow, yeah, it's gigantic and dense. Which, let's have an... When, after I digest Hamilton, uh-huh. we're going to have an episode on Hamilton. Okay, great. Because I still have so many questions about what perfect storm came together that possessed Lin-Manuel and Miranda to write a musical about Hamilton. Of all the things in the world he could write it was a musical. No, he read it. No, I know that, but like um maybe I need to ask him those questions. What caught his Okay. We'll like, have we'll have Lynn Melville <laughs> on one time. Okay. We better get going because we're like 25 30 minutes in and okay. we haven't started. So, the subject of today is the Bible. Yes. More specific, I think hermeneutics. The BIBLE. Yeah, yeah not not exegesis. And um let me start here. I don't know if I mentioned this on the air yet. I mentioned to you Carrie Fisher, our great friend, mm-hmm. has observed that in these conversations, I seem to have a similar-ish position, and so do you. And um, th- this wasn't aware her words precisely, but the way I translated it is kind of, I have a perspective of transcendence, and you have a perspective of imminence. Mm-hmm. Said differently, I come in at these things very idealistically, sure. you come in to them very humanely. Yeah. And um, I think that... I don't know that before I would have, like, voiced that as, like, par for the course for both of us. But I do actually think it does kind of describe how we move through the world. Well, and to be fair, you certainly have deep ideals that run right. deep within you. And I well, <laughs> I try and be humane. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think you care deeply about people. But it's, like, the things that come, the things that are first for us, the things that come most naturally for us are those things yeah so um the way to get here yeah that i i thought would be helpful is i told you after ubc made a decision in 2019 and i say we made a decision we have a leadership team that voted that's our polity they voted on two questions um the questions were um is ubc um is the building uh, can it be rented for same-sex marriages? Mm-hmm. And our staff, do staff have the autonomy to... to Decide to perform same-sex, same-sex marriages, marriages yeah. if they want to. And the um, the kind of subtext for our conversation is that staff was in favor of yes and yes on both those questions. Mm-hmm. We didn't announce that unless, I guess, asked individually, publicly, until after the fact at the request of the leadership team, which meant that in the sermon that we announced, I said publicly that I was for yes on both of those questions. Yeah. So, um, and you obviously were for yes on both those questions. And I, I did my oh, first same-sex wedding in December and was so honored to, to yeah. do that with, for great friends. Um, and but do you know, one of the things that was really important to me as, as a staff, as we talked about these conversations, is that 
you know, not everybody on staff or everybody who will rotate through staff, even as like pastoral associates and stuff, um, necessarily would perform a, a same sex wedding. Right. But everybody believes in the that the autonomy is an important part that we can all decide based on our um, view of scripture and our. Um, I'm thinking, trying to think of a word that I can't, but that we all get to make that choice for ourselves. Yeah. And I think it's probably important to say, and I'm not going to name names here because it's just me and you. I can speak for us. Right. That though everybody on staff would have voted yes, yes to the questions, mm-hmm. might not everybody be on the same page of what they actually believe about it. So the yeah. ecclesiology was a different question than the theology. Yeah. Um, so here's why I wanted to talk about this, though. Two things. One, after the decision... And it was really starting in the fall. I came back and realized that my new theological commitment, I mean, I think I, in my heart I was affirming a lot longer before than my confession, mm-hmm. but like in such a public way that I did have to reckon with how I read the Bible. Yeah. Um, Cause I think that was a shift. Sure. And um, the other thing is, and now I lost my second point in my head. Um, well, I'll let you jump in there and see if you have thoughts about that. Um, oh, no, I know what it is now. Okay. That I sensed through the process. I was not ready to jump in, so I'm glad you remembered. <laughs> I sensed through the process that my getting to my yes on those questions, I think, was different than most people who say yes to those questions, to the two questions UBC posed. Right. Now, here's what I mean by that. I think, maybe errantly, that most people who are affirming have a different approach to scripture in general, and get there either logically or emotionally first and then retrospectively find a hermeneutic that gives them permission to do that. And sometimes don't and just say, well, me and the Bible disagree on this. Yeah. It was very important for me to feel like I had moved with the scripture and had been given permission by scripture to arrive at my position. Yeah. And it's because of what I wanted to maintain what I believed about the authority of scripture. Yeah. In my life. I will. Yeah. And I think that's important. Uh, I will say, when so when we started the conversation, I was already in a place where um, I thought the question should be yes and yes, both ecclesiologically because of who we are as a church and what we proclaim to stand for, and also theologically. Like, I had come to a place where I believed that the answers to those questions should be yes and that that was the movement of the Holy Spirit in my life. And but I do think at some point it was during the process, actually, that I found a hermeneutic for scripture to read it in such a way that I also felt comfortable with. Um, But what I had done before that is, um, you know, I think especially as a woman, who wants to be a Baptist pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there are still people right now who would say there is not a hermeneutic through which you can read scripture and find that it affirms the ability of women to be a pastor. And those are people who don't believe women should be a ministry or just really honest people who do but still don't think the scripture supports it? No, people who um, would say women shouldn't be pastors and scripture does not support the idea that women should okay, be pastors. Okay, so they're conservative on that issue. Yes, and also that predominantly for much of Christian history, like since Christianity has been around, there have been many people who said that women should not be pastors and that this, it was scripture that told them that. And I know people who in their lives have believed that and then have come to find another view. Also, obviously, we find um, we know that that happened with like 
interracial marriage. There were people who said the Bible supported the idea that interracial marriage should not, um, is, was bad. And also slavery, that the Bible supported the idea of slavery. And, um, so I think for me, I had gotten to a place where I did not yet know how to read scripture in such a way that I thought that it affirmed same-sex marriage. But my experience with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, um, and also my experience looking back and seeing how people's views had changed on these subjects was such that I was trusting that a hermeneutic would come to me so that I could read scripture. And I just decided to already embrace that before I found a way to read scripture. But now I have one. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because in some ways, I think you represent maybe the person I was alluding to earlier when I said I think most people get there that are affirming emotionally or experientially. And then um, I, I don't know if that's a mischaracterization. Um, no, I don't think so. That being said, I want to acknowledge that I think for all of us, it is a mix of a scale. Yeah. And so... I do remember, and I used this in a sermon maybe last fall, preaching through um, not this issue in particular or this conversation in particular, but I cited this particular instance I'm about to share where in the same-sex debate, I, um, I had gotten a, it was actually like um, an index in the back of a book about abolitionists in the 18th century, mm-hmm. and there was an Anglican priest who... Um, wrote to, I don't know who, which community he's writing to, presumably some African-Americans, and um, or maybe he was just writing to abolitionist theologians, mm-hmm. saying, um, I so badly want to side with you. Yeah. And, like, he is, the, the formula's there. He's there experientially, right. and he's there emotionally. Mm-hmm. But then he goes on to say, but I cannot do it because of, and he quotes, like, three scriptures. Uh-huh. And um, what I had to admit in the moment is whether or not people think that slavery and same-sex marriage is a very different debate exegetically in the scriptures Mm -hmm. that I was in the exact same place he was in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And that had a huge impact on my kind of future retrospective vision, retrospective vision of myself. Like, wait a minute, this feels very familiar. And and how am I going to feel about this in a hundred years? If I'm around, you know, if I was around to see it. Right. And so that did kind of move me in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do think, um, I saw I would I knew we were going to talk about this today and I saw this tweet today by Bernice King who is um, Martin Luther King's daughter and Martin Luther King Jr's daughter and it made me think of like how I it made me think of this process for myself and this is what she said she said this is, and I know this is one of those things that it's like it will be very compelling for some people it will be uncompelling for some people yeah. as well do you know what I mean she said, Christ broke religious and cultural protocol to be love, capital L love. Mm-hmm. Take the courageous steps he took with the woman at the well. When history, tradition, upbringing, and prejudice say don't love them, be love that breaks barriers. And it just made me think that I know there are people who feel compelled to say that, like, well, when I... There were probably people who said, um, we can remove this a little bit because the space, I think, takes some of the pressure off of it, who said, like... Um, well, I think the way that I have to love uh, African-Americans who are enslaved is by reminding them <laughs> that scripture says that like enslavement is the best option for them. That's mm-hmm. how I love them. Mm-hmm. And it's like we would say now, like, no, that is not how you would love someone. That's not sharing love with somebody. Do you know what I mean? It's not 
at some point it's not granting them the fullness of humanity and the fullness of like the fact that they carry the image of God into the world. And for me, I think it, it is, this is very similar to what Carrie said about us. Like I am just, I am coming at it first and foremost, thinking about people. And like, if someone tells me that their experience in the world that is a different experience than mine, especially someone who is like an, who is part of an oppressed people group that like my first instinct, my first, I should say learned instinct is to listen to them and to say like, well, I don't know at all what that's like. And if you are telling me that the best way to love you is to accept this thing about you or to, you know, whatever, whatever way they're telling me is the best way to love them, then I have to think through that, and it might be that we disagree, but also, um... I guess I'm glad you mentioned that, because, and that may be the most acute way to ask the question I want to ask, is, but do we ever then allow the text to say no? Right. Um, And I don't have an example at the beginning, or to offer you, but that's the thing I was wondering then, is did I just negotiate my ability to say no to anything to myself? Right. I think that's a question worth asking because. Well, and let me say a little bit more, because I think even just putting it out there like that could be offensive. Sure. Uh, another really instrumental book in my development that I read, gosh, 15 years ago was William Webb's book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And the hermeneutical argument he made that stuck with me for a long time, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this for the audience, I know that you know this, is yeah. that with women in slavery, you have a progressively uh, loosening her, he has a name for it, but where the, the, you know, in the terms of rabbis binding and loosening, the tradition's loosening on women, mm-hmm. right? In, in, ter- in the scope of the Bible. So uh, looking back at the Deuteronomical, Deuteronomistic texts about how to treat women and slaves after war, it looks absolutely barbaric. Mm-hmm. But compared to other texts in the ancient Near East, it's a step towards grace. Right. So that's our, that's our launch point. Then you see Deborah and Judges, you see... Um, you know, is it, what's the story? Jael and what's her name? Drives the tent peg. Uh-huh. You know, you see some yeah. kind of women, women having real agency. Yeah. Um, you have Ruth, which I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of patriarchy at work there, but sure. small sense of agency. Naomi, at least it's a story about women. Right. Esther. Then you have um, kind of Jesus, the woman of the well, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in Paul's letters, we have Syntyche, Yodia, yeah. um, Junia, um, a laundry list of women who are clearly in charge in the church and doing uh, who's act 16 is Lydia. I think the purple mm-hmm. dye cloth lady yeah, Lydia. has agency and status in, in Rome. And so the, the thought is, okay, this is where this is marching. Uh-huh. Same thing with slavery. Although you can read some African-American commentators who will get all the way to Philemon and say, this isn't enough. Right. So that being said, but um, Webb back to his, his point was that it's consistent, consistently restrictive on homosexuality. Sure. So that put a big barrier in front of me because I was there emotionally and experientially before I was able to get there in my thought biblically mm-hmm. and I had to, to jump that sorry that was a, a tangent but it felt like an important part yeah. of my my journey to name that well and it I mean and I do think it's interesting to I think one of the things in this journey in this uh, conversation and journey that makes um, that is tricky for people is I do think the American church has done a poor job of explaining um, biblical translation to people and like what that process looks like? Yeah. And how much ambiguity is there? Yeah. I don't think people understand um, what translation looks like um, and how, right, and how it is like, especially the Hebrew, but in the Greek as well, like 
people are making choices. Yeah. Like those words can mean many different things. And somebody at some point made a choice. And also it's like, so of course there's best practice. And of course there's like translations that people take more seriously than other translations because most scholars agree on how you would translate those words. But right. I don't think, I certainly, until I got to seminary, truly, until I got to seminary and started studying biblical languages, I did not understand all that was at play with translation choices. Well, and kind of a, even away from all of this, when you just look at the, the formation of the Septuagint, which becomes the predominant Hebrew text in the Greek-speaking world, mm-hmm. like there are all kinds of theological choices made, even in how they appropriated what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, for their telling of the New Testament story. Right, yeah. So the, um, the inerrancy issue sort of predates the text itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. Well, and what's the big article that's always... I see it pop up every couple months. It's about the word homosexual being added to a German Bible in like 1946 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, 18 or 19... Something, I don't know what it is. Some American company paid for that to happen too. Yeah. Um, anyhow, yes, the the translation stuff is, is very important. And I don't know how to resolve that either because it does take nuance. It does take study and it does take care to get there. And of course, as pastors, we can try and pass that along yeah. in encoded messages the best we can. But really to do it well, you, you almost have to go through that process. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Which is, you know what? This is just a, a little shout out to our folks at UBC, I guess. Because I do feel like we have so many people who are just so amazingly interested in, like, studying on their own time things that, like, I never would have taken the time to study if I did not go to seminary. Like, we just have so many engaged, thoughtful, intelligent people at UBC, and it blows my mind all of the time. Well, and I think, too... um Another key part of this is humility. Mm-hmm. I think we have people that are instinctively yeah. humble about it. Yeah. And maybe, um, you know, I think that makes a big difference yeah. in your approach to the text. That's certainly true. So another thing that I wanted to talk about that I really discovered in that process was, um, you know, I, I think Romans 1 is such a powerful text. And mm-hmm. I think if you just left this discussion in an exegetical arena you would probably come to, in my opinion, a restrictive conclusion about same-sex marriage. Um, So one of the the lines of thought that became very powerful for me was um, the Jew-Gentile thing over boundary markers in in, uh, the the early church. So circumcision and Sabbath-keeping and food regulations were the big ones that we know about. Sorry, we're outside, and the squirrels are rustling in the leaves <laughs> by us, and Taylor just gave me a what-the-heck face. It's it's um, Indigenous People Day. Okay. It is Columbus Day, and my kids are home, so that's why yeah. we're out on the porch. Yeah. And it's lovely outside. It is. Very but lovely. to the point, so you have these three boundary markers, and um, what really was salient for me was, in my own experience and fear of, like, what if I decide the wrong thing about this? Yeah. Was that... What I knew for sure and still believe a 100% is that the, the Jewish Christians in deciding to disregard with these expectations for being um, in a, you know, essentially a Jew because they didn't think they were Christians mm-hmm. so that Gentile converts could come into the way of Jesus felt just as unsure and scary and yeah. as if the text itself had been negotiated, because you can find very restrictive prescriptions on all of those things in the Torah. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow they found the courage to say, but no, this is right. Yeah. Yeah, that is. 
that is like a really inspirational way to think about it, I think. Um, because, well, and you know, I just keep seeing people, it's so interesting because it's about voting. People saying like, why are you telling people that based on who they're voting for, like they are or are not a Christian? That's not how, that's not how anybody holds salvation. Like everybody believes that, I shouldn't say everybody, but you know, sort of the Orthodox Christian view of salvation is that it's by grace through faith, you know? And I think that that comes into play here as well for me in thinking about like, what do I feel like I know I am commanded to do? I know I am commanded to love people well, to love God and to love my neighbor, you know? And so what is, and of course, so many people would answer this differently, but at some point it becomes a question of like, what is at stake? And it's Mm. like, well, the thing that is, and a question that is important for my life, which is like, and what is mine to do? Yeah. What is at stake? And then what is mine to do? That's right. And for me, the thing that I feel is the most important for me to do is to love my neighbor well. And so, and then, you know, and if I get that wrong, I think it's okay. I mean, you know, this is, of course, the decision I came to for my life. And if I get that wrong, I think it is okay for me to have erred on the side of trying to love people well. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, I So, again, to return to the difficult question is, are we ever called to love people in a way that feels hard for them or hard for us mm-hmm. right so the the suggestion to use our example we've been talking about same-sex marriages mm-hmm. a lot of folks point to the celibacy thing yeah and you know i land in a place where i disagreed with that but it's this this idea that um well it's kind of what we talked about last week in abortion is that's the, the argument i made at the end is um do we get to ask hard things of people yeah. based on what the text says yeah and i think we do i mean i it's so insane to me it's insane is maybe the wrong word but um, it does drive me up a wall as a person who is 33 and unmarried that the only time celibacy comes up as a legitimate Christian option is in this conversation. Right. Because I'll tell you what, it comes up in scripture a lot. <laughs> and it also comes up in scripture as like, you're better. You're a better person if you're not, if you right. can be it's, an unmarried person. It's elevated above marriage. Yeah. Which, I mean, is as hard as evangelicals pound family values and that kind of image yeah. didn't get talked about a lot. No. And so that kind of drives me up a wall, um, that it just comes up in that way. Um, but also, it's like, I think, I feel really pretty confident that we do get to ask people to do hard things. Um, I think I, I think I feel unconfident that we get to ask, like, strangers to do hard things. Do you know what I mean? I think right. that relationship is an important part of that yep um and that came out last week yeah 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 you don't get to just throw the ask out to anybody yeah so if you meet someone and they're like i am gay and a christian you don't get to immediately be like well that's bad and i ask you in the name of christ not to do that anymore right which i think uh that's why in my opinion it's so distasteful for any kind of religion to be wrapped up in politics is because you know, even if you could achieve the moral vision for the country you wanted politically through a candidate, I mean, just given what faith 
in Jesus is about in terms of, you know, to use the subjective language of the heart, mm-hmm. like you're not going to accomplish what you hope to accomplish because of what's required to do that. Right. And the, the opposite thing happens is it becomes yeah. distasteful and people dislike it because it feels forced. Yeah. That's in episode one of the West Wing, really. Yeah. They talk about that early on. I think that comes up again in, later in season one. Um, so let me ask you this then to step out of this particular conversation more broadly then. Okay. That was a, a handle for us. Um, how, how do you speak of the Bible and what do you think about it? The Bible? Yeah. What place does it have in your life and how do you make sense of that theologically? You know, I really like, is it First Timothy? Uh, yeah, 316. Yep. Yeah, and uh, useful for... Teaching, rebuking, and instructing, correcting, and instructing, yeah. Um, That is an important, um, those are important words for me because, I mean, I guess I probably view them a little more loosely Mm -hmm. than um, some people would. Uh, But I, I believe that the Bible was written, um, you know, that it was written and that we read it now with the help of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, that leaves a lot of room for messiness and for getting things wrong. But mm-hmm. I do think that's the that is the space and grace that we've been given by God in like living life on this earth, you know. And so I do think that um, it instructs us. It corrects us. And I think mostly that it's like. When you, you know, when you're talking about asking people to do hard things, it seems to me first and foremost that the people who we should be asking to do hard things are ourselves. Um, that is where we should start. And, um, yeah. And then I think of it, especially as like a helper. So, you know, like I certainly at this point, no one would accuse me of like making the Bible into the fourth member of the Trinity, but. I think it serves a purpose for us as like a document that we can hold and put our hands on um, that is very helpful since we're tactile creatures, you know? Yeah. What about you? I kind of had to have a slow regression of letting go of terms. So I've never, I mean, I probably said inerrant when I was little and I didn't know what that mean. Yeah. Um, then when I kind of discovered the politics of that term and realized it was used as a tool to beat people down. And like you made the point last week about death of a thousand qualifications. Mm-hmm. It's just a useless term. Yeah. Um, then I shifted to infallible, which is I understood it was scripture is infallible and what it sets out to communicate infallibly about, which would be, you know, salvation history, i.e. not science and mm-hmm. like actual history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was comfortable. Now... Not because I've rejected infallibility so much, just because I think it, it can means more to me. I talk about, I think the Bible is inspired and inspiring. Yeah. Um, and I think what the real authority, though, of Scripture is that a community comes around the text and gives it permission to tell and make sense of its own stories. Mm-hmm. And from that, we derive our ethics. Mm-hmm. And I think that view also allows for an interplay between what we talked about with Scripture, reason, um, tradition and what's the other one experience Experience. yeah that's the wesleyan quadrilateral yeah um you know i think for protestants the text has been clearly elevated above those other three although what we've talked about richard war who is a catholic franciscan but i think he's right Mm -hmm. says that in actuality experience is the first wheel for all of us on a tricycle well it's 
that makes me think of it was it was Tran, right? Jonathan Tran, who you had come in during this conversation yeah, and to do the hermeneutics. His class and how they all felt like they learned a lot, but truly nobody changed their mind. Right. At the end of class, mm-hmm. at the end of this like semester long study. Yeah. Um, well, and I do think it's because I don't think the data changes most people's minds. Right. I think it's a commitment that commitment to a kind of scripture or a posture that scripture determines what's possible for an outcome from the get go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's true as well. And I think it, it would be helpful if we were all a little more honest about that. Right. Well, and that's the thing is I, I can nitpick at people and find inconsistencies. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I have to, I find those on myself too. Yeah. And course. that's really painful. So painful. It's the worst. Yeah. Nobody I'll... reads the Bible as clearly as they think they do. No. Or consistently. No. Uh, just a, a quote that I like that I say in sermons all the time is from Kelvin, oh. which is without the Holy Spirit, the Bible's a dead book, which you alluded to. We need the spirit. I would also say uh, the other one is community, spirit and community yeah. for reading the text. Um, and part of that is, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a postmodernist, sure. but I do think the inevitability of um, ethics being a cultural construct is true. Mm-hmm. So I always give this example of Tertullian and I think it's Timothy in the pastorals where in one I think it's Timothy gives very specific instructions about adding w- widows to the list. Um, mm-hmm. And then in hundred years later, Tertullian or however many years later gives the exact opposite instructions. And it's because of the status of women in the culture where in one setting, they're very wealthy and can help the church in one setting. They need the help. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to read it literally, you can't have a consistent approach to the problem. Right. And so problems evolve, culture evolves, we evolve. Yeah. And that's not to say truth is timeless, but our understanding of truth and it's, application take on different meaning and we have to be humble enough to see that yeah yeah i do think that's so important and there are all kinds of questions we didn't get to to unpack our own positions on same-sex marriage that if people are interested they could call us sure yeah call me up okay uh we need to wrap this up because we have a special guest today yes we're actually going to hit pause and, and ring him in a minute but last night the NBA season came to a conclusion as yeah. the Los Angeles Lakers won their 17th organizational title and LeBron James won his fourth yeah. um, in the last, out of the last 10 years. So uh, he's been there nine sort times. sort of boring, TBH. Well, I'll be honest. I didn't even watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was going on, but I was playing poker and I was watching Dancing with Stars with my kids. But I'm very excited about our guest who we're going to ring up uh, just now. Yeah. Hello? Elliot, my main man, how you doing? Good. Elliot, we're recording live, so don't swear at me or anything, okay? <laughs> Hi, Elliot. Okay. You know Taylor. Remember Taylor? Yes. Taylor and I here just enjoying life. Well, Elliot, uh, you know why we're calling. First, let me introduce you to our guest. Yeah. Elliot Cry is a um, frequent guest on the podcast Curious. He is one of the uh, early authors of the Ronald the Chicken middle school phenomenon <laughs> at Woodway. <laughs> he uh, is a first-team All-American athlete as both a cross-country runner and a basketball player, and he's one of the uh, best NBA analysis we know here in the Waco community. Yes. So, Elliot, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Elliot, um, initial re- reaction to last night and just, you know, six games, did it go how you thought it would go? Um, I mean, I really wanted the Heat to win. Same. But after the first couple of games, I thought that it was going to be a quick series. You thought it would be a split series? Well, yeah, I thought it would be in like four or five, so I was happy that it 
got to six, but it was kind of disappointing. But it was just a big blowout to end the NBA season. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Taylor. You were going to jump in. No, well, I was going to say, like, last night, the game was pretty boring. It, like, wasn't a very interesting mm-hmm. game to, like, close out the season. Now, uh-huh. Elliot, um, so I went back and I listened to our, our conversation about the NBA. I guess it was almost a year ago now. And yes, um, I was wrong about a lot of things on that. Well, you know what, though? You, you prognosticated. You did your best. That's what we do. But uh, you, you had the Clippers. Um, uh-huh. Let's start with them. Were you surprised to then at an exit against Denver? Yes. Um, I liked the Nuggets, and I thought they could do it, but I, I didn't think they would actually come back from three one. Mm-hmm. So that was surprising. Yeah, I mean, what a run! I mean, the the Nuggets, I, well, well, the Heat, which we'll talk about at the end, but really the Nuggets, other than that, were the story of the playoffs, in my opinion. Down three one oh, yeah. twice. What a great series. I think they took a lot of inspiration from The Last Dance and Michael Jordan's pettiness. Yeah. They drew from that a lot. They drew from it. Did you watch that documentary, Elliot? Yes. Well, I won't tell your parents because there were some F-bombs in there. But, um, mm-hmm. I watched it with my dad. Yeah, Roy watched it with me too, so I'm no better as a human mm-hmm. being and parent. Um, Elliot, one of the predictions we made earlier on, well, actually I made, I'm pretty proud of it, is I, I speculated the Mavericks would come in as a seven seed. I'm ready to now say, and the Mavericks are Taylor's team, I'm now ready to say they're going to come back next year as a, a four seed and that Luka Doncic is ready to make a big splash in the NBA. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's his, It's like his his number two year, and he's already on NBA first team. So. Yeah, I mean, the numbers he put up are just astounding. I asked Taylor this question a couple of weeks ago. What's the one piece the Mavs need to, to go to the next level? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, it's defense because they had the best offense in the NBA this year, but their defense is in the playoffs. There was some games where it was just, they could not stop anybody. So they need to get a good, like, wing defender. Um, it doesn't have to be a star or anything, but that would really help them. So if you if you were the GM, who would you go after? Well, I mean, obviously, if you could just pick anybody, you'd pick Giannis. No. That's what I said. But Taylor Bobby, really wants Giannis. But – but if we're trying to be like serious, real, yeah. I would try to. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of just good, solid defensive guards. Um, even like I think another Bucks player, if the Bucks got like Chris Middleton, that would be a that would that'd be a really good pick. Um, yeah, I know. Last year they tried to get Patrick Beverly, who's known for his defense, but he stayed with the Clippers. So, just a defensive player. Yeah. I have a question, but it's in another direction. Is that, are we ready yeah, for that, Josh? Yeah, we're, okay. we're just popcorn in here. Um, what, what do you think, LA, were the implications for, like, um, LeBron's legacy last night in winning with another team and, you know, another championship, another MVP? What do you think? It definitely helps, but I don't really think it's going to change anybody's mind about like LeBron in my opinion will always be the number two player of all time I don't think he's I don't think he can pass MJ no matter what he does Mm. but he can just continue to build like I mean winning another championship with three different teams is is impressive and it's amazing but that's not gonna just make me see that and say okay now he's better than MJ right 
You know, I think I agree with you. Like, I don't know that there is an amount of championships he could win. But why do you think that is? Why do we intuitively arrive in that place? Is it because he lost a couple getting there? Is it because he just is a different kind of player? He played in a different era? What, for you, keeps him from being able to get to where Jordan is? I mean, I just think this, like, GOAT debate, I think once you, like, if you think that a player is the best, I don't really think a player can do anything to really change your mind that much. Like, most people are going to say MJ, but, like, my generation, most people would probably say LeBron just because they grew up around LeBron. But I don't think, like, say LeBron, if LeBron somehow wins, like, three more rings in his career, that might change my mind. Yeah. But if he goes out and wins another one, I'm, I don't think that can change my mind that he is better than MJ. You know what I think is maybe true? I think that, um... You know, LeBron has taken a lot of time to learn the ins and outs of, like, the game and the um, the league. And I think, I wonder if he has a big, if he has a future in, like, maybe coaching or management. And, like, maybe that is something that he might become known for. But I do think it's just hard to deny, like, Michael Jordan's playing style and his, like, charisma on the court. And, like, all the things that he did that were just so dominant. Um, so I wonder I, if that might be a way that LeBron goes on to, like, define himself differently. Is in, like, either in coaching or management or something like that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think he will because there's been a ton of times, like, back when the Cavs won it, when they came back down from 3-1 against the Warriors. Like, most people said LeBron was basically the coach of that team. Mm-hmm. And he's, like... And because of all the power he has, he's able to basically manage. Like, he's the one that went out and got Anthony Davis. Like, he told yeah. the Lakers, I want Anthony Davis. Yeah. So, I think afterwards, if he if he, if he he wants to, any team would sign LeBron. Yeah. Oh. Well, and to, to reiterate what Taylor said, one thing we talk about a lot recently is we think that LeBron has some of the best basketball IQ we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, I'd say top three. Well, and his ability to, to, again, reiterate, to coach players as he's playing the game with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just with his words, but what he does and doesn't do, the way he models the game, uh, the way he plays to win, not just to to look good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's also like the way he's able to change his play style from on the Cavs, he was a scorer that just scored a ton to where he went to the Heat. He scored, but he was also, like, a first-team all-defender, and now he comes here and he leads the NBA and assists. Right. Um, so he's able to just change his, change his play style from for the places that he goes to. Yeah. That's really impressive. But I, you know what? I almost think that's one of the things that, like, stops people from thinking of him as, as dominant as Michael Jordan is because he will, mm-hmm. be, he will just fit in. He'll get in where he fits in. Do you know what I mean? He does the thing the team needs. And I think that makes it him seem not as, like, dominant and, like, aggressive and focused on the win because it's so different than what yeah. Jordan did. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like in game five, everybody got mad whenever he whenever he passed the ball. Right. Um, but, I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think, I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you tell me that he's the go, I'm not going to, like, argue. Like, you, like... Like, that's sure. your choice, and I think that he's, like, insanely close. Yeah. But I just I, I just think because of the different, like, eras that these guys played, it's so hard to, like, to compare them. Yeah, for sure. Um, but 
I think I would still say MJ, but it's just, it's tough. You know, the other thing I wonder too, and, and I, I had felt this, but that documentary really cemented it for me is when they go through that last 30 seconds in that game six against the Utah Jazz in 1998, mm-hmm. and Costa says, this is probably the best 30 seconds of basketball you'll ever see in your life. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if part of what bolstered Jordan's GOAT status was, uh, you know, he came back and he played with the Wizards, but really that was people's last memory of him. And I think it was just such an exclamation point on his career. And, of course, maybe LeBron has that moment coming down the end, but I think Michael Jordan's not just stats and his ability, but his narrative argued so strongly for what he was able to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was able to just take over a game at any time. And just. And, and you saw that and in the very last moment with the Bulls. That's what he did. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that whole documentary – I think that was kind of Jordan's way um, of trying to show people that he's the GOAT. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like, because that whole thing was basically just flexing how great Michael Jordan is. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of Enneagram you know? 3 in there, I think. <laughs> yeah, and and I heard that. So, they, so he had a film crew that whole – that – that whole year and then whenever LeBron won his ring with the Cavs in 2016 he allowed them to have um he allowed them to start making the documentary okay probably it's kinda, because he wanted to that be was as a goat. the impetus for the counter argument huh oh, wow well you know I have once said um that LeBron can't really be in the GOAT conversation until they made Space Jam 2. And that was, like, when I thought they were never going to make Space Jam 2. And now they are making Space Jam 2. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Multi-generational fan following. Yeah. So, uh, Elliot, let's transition out of the heat. Um, certainly a Cinderella kind of story. You know, when they beat the Bucks, and, you know, you you had the Giannis injury, but they, they had clearly handled them not just in that series up to that point, but also in the regular season. They took four from five okay. of the Bucks in the regular season. And I thought, my goodness, here's a, a pretty good team. Um, but then they they really dominate the Celtics too. Here, So the question I pose to Taylor is, is this a streak or is this a legit team and are they going to come out as the number one or two seed next year in the East? Um, I mean, they're legit. Um, they have – great coaching and they and and they put together a team to where they can well I think they built their whole team this year around trying to get Giannis next year in free agency with young players but then this guy started to step up like Jimmy Butler in the playoffs went from an like an all-star to top three player in the NBA and then they had like guys like Bam who was able to stop Giannis and hold him and that's how they handled the Bucks so easily um, and I think next year that I don't think they'll be like the one seed again or not again, but I think that they will be a, a contender for sure. Uh, here's a question I got for you, particularly about the personnel from the heat. You know, in that, um, that interview I did with you back in the fall, very astutely you had picked up on the early performance of Kendrick Nunn and, um, he ended up being a first team rookie. Tyler Hero was second team. But I didn't pay close enough attention. It seemed like none turned out to be kind of a non-factor in the playoffs. Why is that? Um, in the playoffs, the Heat started to go with an eight-man rotation, and just none was just out of it. I mean, 
it's not like he was doing that bad. They just, Goran Dragic was the top scorer, and they were just going with their starters, and then they would bring Tyler Hero off the bench, and then Iggy for the defense. And then I guess he just fell out because they wanted to have the best chance to win, and they were playing their starters a ton of minutes. But then he finally got in in the finals when Dragic got hurt. So um, do you think that they'll start shopping none? No, I still think because he was a great piece in the season, I just think they thought it was their best chance to win if they played their top guys the, the, the majority of the game because they didn't have those stars like LeBron and Anthony Davis. They had they had a really good team. They had great chemistry, so they had to play their guys a lot more. Yeah. Uh, but... I mean, I don't know. I think part of it was none started off the playoffs not playing great. Yeah. But I still think that he'll, that, that he'll stay around. I think it'll be interesting to see. The bubble was, like, such a particular thing. Do you know what I mean? So it'll be interesting to see how everybody comes out of it. That's true. That's a different experience. Yeah. So uh, here's the last set of questions I have for you, Elliot. Um, is I'm thinking about the off season, and, and who knows when the NBA is going to resume again. Um, mm-hmm. You've got the, – the big stories for me is you're going to have a Golden State squad reassembled that's going to make some noise in the West. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a Brooklyn for team sure. that's going to just come out of nowhere and conceivably be a, at least a three seed, maybe higher. They may win the East next year. You never know. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other one for me, though, is the Clippers. I think that was a big slap in the face. They let go of their coach. I do think emotionally that takes a toll on the team. Uh, so kind of how do you think see things falling out with uh, those three teams next year? Um, yeah, Golden State, it's funny because everybody just like forgot about them this year because their top uh, top guys got hurt, and they still have like a, a top pick in the draft. So I think they will come out and make some noise. Um, and I think they'll be a top seed in the West. But I don't see them. It depends on the. I mean, the Clippers are such a curious case because they have so much talent, and yet their team just fell apart last year. Um, so I think. I don't think that. I think the Lakers will go back to the finals again next year. You're already going to call over Golden State, over the Nuggets, over the Clippers. They'll they'll be back. Think so? That's what I would say. But okay. They could, they, but it could easily change. If the Clippers start to play together, they have the most talent. Um, I don't, and then tell you what I don't understand the about Warriors, the Clippers. I don't understand why Lou comes off the bench. Well, I mean, he's like the Manu of like. Yeah, the, he's just clearly a six man. Like, yeah. Um, but there was a lot of times in the playoffs where he was playing when when he maybe shouldn't have. Because he is such a defensive liability, there's a bunch of times where teams would just get him on their star player and then just try to clear out. Yeah. So, but then for Brooklyn, I mean, with Kevin Durant and Kyrie on the team, you can't just, like, ignore them at all. No. There's a chance that they could come out and just completely dominate the league. Because um, they also have great, they also have a bunch of great other players. Um, so... I don't really know how – I think the two most curious teams are the Nets and the Clippers because they have the potential to just go and just destroy everybody, but they could also easily lose. Yeah. 
Taylor, you got anything? Um, no, I just was listening. <laughs> I'm trying to take it all in. This is such good analysis. Well, uh, Elliot, we want to say thanks. You're such a, a smart individual, um, and you sure pay attention to the game, and it's always fun to talk to you. And you've been the first parishioner at UBC to be on. Uh, it was either this or, so yeah. thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for being our guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, buddy, we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Thank you. Oops, cut him off. Uh, what a smart kid. I mean. Gosh, I'm glad I didn't know him when I was an eighth grader. Also, I'd feel very insecure <laughs> about myself. I know. He's just, he's so great and so smart. And I'm so glad he was willing to come talk to us about basketball. That was such a fun conversation. Yeah. Well, Taylor, um, this is the longest episode of It Was Either This Or. Okay, um, there is one thing I have to say before we go. Yeah. And that is that I have committed to only praying for Dak Prescott for the next 6 to 18 months. So okay. You're a Cowboys kid. Nobody yeah. else asked me to pray for them because I won't. Okay. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'll well, I will say next week we can start picking up with college football and pro football because the NBA oh, is over. That'll be, well, first of all, sad, but also happy. Yeah. And also it was horrible i was so sad for so much of yesterday because i love Dak prescott he seems like a good guy yeah all right thanks for tuning in everyone bye you guys